0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Rivka Weinberg. Her new book is titled The Risk of a Lifetime, How, When, and Why Procreation May be Permissible. It was just published by Oxford University Press. Weinberg is Professor of Philosophy at Scripps College, Claremont. We don't commonly think of procreation as a moral issue, but why not? When you think about it, creating another person seems like a morally weighty thing to do. And we tend to think that procreation under certain conditions would be irresponsible or selfish or even reckless. Might there also be cases where procreation is morally impermissible? In The Risk of a Lifetime, Rivka Weinberg explores a broad range of questions concerning the morality of procreation. She argues that procreation is a form of risk imposition, and so is morally permissible only under certain circumstances. In taking this view, she places herself in opposition to two more popular stances, one holding that procreation is almost never impermissible, and the other that procreation is never permissible. Employing a Rawlsian constructivist model, Weinberg proposes two principles that establish conditions for permissible procreation. The Risk of a Lifetime is a lively and nuanced book, and there's a lot to talk about. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Rivka Weinberg.
1: Hi, Bob.
0: How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, doing okay, doing okay. Thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy to talk about your book.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: And thank you, listener, for tuning in to the podcast. My guest today is Rivka Weinberg. Her new book is titled The Risk of a Lifetime, How, When, and Why Procreation May Be Permissible. The book is published newly by Oxford University Press, and it presents a sort of a lively exploration of um, a range of issues dealing with the ethics of procreation. Um, After all, uh, when you think about it, uh, the creation of a new person is a pretty momentous thing, Um, and moreover, um, it's commonly thought um, that life uh, is at best a mixed bag. Um, So one wonders, could it be that um, uh, it's wrong or problematic or morally questionable to procreate? Um, In the risk of a lifetime, uh, Rivka skillfully develops uh, a pretty um, detailed and nuanced view according to which procreation is permissible under specific conditions. Um, and getting clear about what those conditions are and what the constraints are uh, is, is, is really what, what uh, is, is the heart of at the heart of this pretty exciting book. So as usual, there's a lot to talk about. Um, but we usually begin uh, with the author. Uh, so Rivka, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, sure. So I was born in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, well before it was cool. Um, and I became, you know, people ask me how I became interested in philosophy. And I think I was always interested in philosophy. I just didn't know that that's what it was called. You know, when I remember as a kid thinking like when I say I'm nauseous and you say you're nauseous, how do we know we're talking about the same thing and thinking a lot about nothingness and pointlessness. Uh, and those are things that I continue to think about a lot now still. Um, and then when I went to college, I went to Brooklyn College, and at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, philosophy was required. And in my first semester, it was required and open, and it was pretty much, uh, so I took a philosophy class and I was like, oh yeah, this is what I've been thinking about all along. Um, and so that was, you know, I was stuck from there with philosophy. Um, and in terms of being interested in, so I'm interested in, um, The ethics and metaphysics of birth and death and questions about meaning and theories of moral obligation, uh, but specifically procreative ethics, because um, I guess I kind of feel like life is not this great deal and I never signed on to it. And so that really always had me thinking about, um, you know, imposing life on other people and what kind of a big deal that is to do and how much it is to what a burden it is to you know be alive having not you know been consulted um and this is just my only slightly fancier way of just saying I never has to be born but um, i think uh i think that's a very serious thing and that's something that really did get me interested in this in in procreative ethics um and the approach and and i feel the approach i take in in the book and to philosophy in general is very Theory grounded, maybe more so than other people who do ethics that has you know an application, um, because I feel you know, I don't I feel like starting with the applied part is just like starting from the middle of the story. So I'm also interested in you know ethical theories and theories of obligation, in particular, and we'll talk about this I'm sure later. Contractualist theory, and but that's sort of how I got interested in, um, in in what I talk about in the book. Um, so excellent
0: well why don't we why don't we turn to the book then um so just picking up on um the way you described your uh your way in or your motivation into uh to the issue um you begin the book um where i guess uh one should begin which is uh by examining um uh, the very idea of procreation, or, or by examining the, the, the question, uh, we might say, of you know what kind of act procreative acts are, um, and um, you uh, go through a couple of different views uh, in currency about you know the nature of the procreative act, um, and you wind up uh, uh, defending the view that. Um, the, procre- the procreative act is a is is a kind of risk imposing act. Can you, uh, again, starting from the beginning, tell us a little bit about the risk imposition view, and maybe contrast it with some of the um, perhaps more familiar views um, about life being a gift, for example?
1: So, if I so think about what, as you as you said um, at the beginning of this interview, that most people think of life as a mixed bag, and so when you create somebody, you're putting them into this mixed bag with the risks of both positive and negative outcomes and everything in between and so if you think about what you're actually doing how to fit this kind of act even though it seems very a very unique act into other other forms of other forms of ways we interact with other people and see if we can sort of fit it into a um an ethical theory that covers also how we deal with other people so what is it that we're doing to another person when we create them Um, And to say that it's just giving them this, and a lot of people think it's, you know, you're giving the gift of life, people are grateful to be alive, but it's just, it's just an odd to give a gift to somebody that they never asked for that could harm them and that even more so will harm them unless they take a lot of steps to make sure it doesn't because, you know, life is not a passive gift. It's like, you know, not even like, it's more like a a puppy you have to take care of and even worse because, you know, if you don't take care of the puppy, you're kind of, not a very nice person and the puppy's going to suffer. But if you don't take care of your life and work really hard at it, you're the one who's going to suffer. And so it just doesn't seem like you're giving somebody a gift. It's more like giving them this big job. You know, David Vellman says you're putting them in a predicament, and that sounds like even worse than a gift. Um, <laughs> uh, although I think he backs a little bit away from that at various points. Um, Other people who are more optimistic, I think, think of it as adding value to the world and just doing this great thing. You know, like people are great and life is great, and you're just doing more of it. Um, And that seems to me, again, very overly optimistic because only some people are great and some people are horrible. Um, And and you're, you're not, so you wouldn't always be adding value to the world and. If you're going to be adding, and I also find the idea of just adding value to the world a very strange thing to think about, as if value comes in like pieces and you can add to it quantitatively by just putting another piece in, Uh, and it you know it doesn't seem like what anybody thinks they're doing when they procreate, Um, and it also doesn't take into account uh, the risks that you that the other person that the person you create has to cope with once you've created this great value or whatever else you think about. So I think the risk imposition is the most accurate way of describing what it is you're doing when you have a child. And also it also fits into the why you do it. You do it because you want to. Hopefully it's okay under certain circumstances, but that's why you do it. It's not like you're trying to be such a great person because there are more effective ways of being a great person or of adding value to the world or giving gifts for that matter. So um, I just think it's more realistic to talk about it as a risk and position and also more balanced in terms of how life can turn out. Um, and I, yeah, I guess I just think it's the most accurate way to describe what you're doing to the person you're doing it to the person that will be born.
0: Right. And just a quick question. Those who, um, take one of the more optimistic options and forget about the gift, the gift view, um, the adding value to the, uh, to the world view Um, do people who have that view, I mean, do they say anything about, um, you know, what you just said, which is, you know, there are more effective ways to add value to the world if that's what you think you're doing when you're procreating. Um, do they have a response to that? But that seems to me to be totally decisive in a way. It's like you want to add value to the world. There's a million other things you can do that would be more reliable ways of adding value and would be, um, uh, ways of adding more important kinds of value or, Uh, deeper uh, uh, quantities of of what you think is valuable? Do they have a response to that?
1: So I don't think that they address this particularly. Sol Smolenski has this, has a paper on whether, among other people, you know, has a paper about why adding value, you know, why you should be able to have children as adding value to the world. And I don't think, I think, and it's fair, I think, for people who have this view to say, well, you don't always have to maximize the value that you add. So, Mm. Then you don't have to do these other ways of maximizing value. You don't have to go be Mother Teresa or whatever. But it's permissible to add value in this way. But that really is kind of talking about permissibility before you're thinking about what it is that you're doing. And it just seems to me um, just flat out false to say that all you're doing is adding value. You could be adding disvalue. You're adding you're adding a, you're adding a possibility of value and a possibility of negative value. Um, so that to me, is the stronger argument for why it's not um adding value, but also because it's not why people do it. It's just not an accurate um description of the motivation. I don't think most I think it's very uncommon to say, "I'm having a child because I want to add value to the world
0: <laughs> well, it would also be a very strange thing. <laughs> Sounds like a strange thing for somebody to say as well. Right.
1: And so oh. and, and it, it also doesn't sound like a way you the reason you wanted to have, you know, a person would have wanted their parents to have decided to have them. You know, oh, my parents wanted to add value to the world. So they had me It's like, why didn't they just, you know, I don't know, build a homeless shelter instead. It's very impersonal um, uh, and not like the kind of it's not sort of relationship based.
0: Well, that seems right. And can I now ask one follow-up question about the gift view, if that's okay? Um, So uh, again, I'm uh, I'm not familiar with the with the with the with the field in this literature. So the gift view also struck me as as puzzling. Um, I mean, I know it's a it's a trope in the vernacular that life is a beautiful gift and all this. I didn't know that there were philosophers who would pick that up. Um, Does the gift view require uh, those who promote it to also have a a very rosy picture of, you know, what life is, or we might say in a different tone, a very naive picture of what life is?
1: Well, I think it does. I I think a lot of people's sort of initial or intuitive um, reactions or thoughts about procreation are temperament based. I've come to discover that or to think that way after talking to many, many people. You'd be surprised. How widespread this idea that life is a gift is. Um, there are a lot of happy people out there. I don't know exactly why or what they <laughs> have in mind, um, but the you know they just think that there are a lot of um, Nagel says this when he talks about death. He says you know life is good even when it's bad. It's good because it's just 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 having the opportunity. He says this in his. Uh, paper I think it's called the uh, dead is it called death I think whatever I'm not sure what the title is, but when he I think it's just called death I think it's called death yes I think right. yeah. um and he's you know he just thinks that life is just inherently good it's this opportunity for experience and even when you're experiencing something bad it's like at least you're experiencing it and I think that that's just the difference fundamental difference in attitude I don't know of any arguments to back that up but I, I also hesitate to say that it's just flat out full because it's a subjective um feeling about what life is like and that might be true for him. I just don't think you can bet on it being
0: true for your children right um so uh if we are um if we're on board and if and this this part of the at least the, the first step in the book seems to me to be pretty compelling that the right way to think about procreative acts is a kind of risk imposition um and that makes it uh, easy then to think that procreative acts have to be morally evaluable, right? I mean, uh, if they are uh, at least uh, centrally or in large measure uh, risk imposition, then it looks like, you know, there are going to be cases in which it's um, uh, there at least going to be cases in which it's impermissible. Um, and so um, part of the uh, task then um Uh, The the next task of the book then is, well, once we know that procreative acts are a kind of risk imposition, we've got to identify um, to whom uh, the moral responsibility for procreative acts falls. um, And uh, you've got this view called the hazmat theory of uh, of procreative responsibility. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how that how that works? Maybe beginning with. You know, I was surprised uh, again, uh, having not thought deeply about these issues before reading your book, I was surprised um, to discover, um, you know, how difficult it is philosophically to identify, you know, things that look pretty obvious, like who are the parents of, (laughs) uh, you know, just to identify, you know, who qualifies as a parent is 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 an interesting uh, philosophical puzzle.
1: I actually don't think it's that difficult. I just think people don't like the answer. Uh. Right. and and very frequently the theories are put forth you know in order to advance a particular position rather than in just terms of real you know thinking about the theoretical interest about in who um is parentally responsible for a child and so if you look at the prevailing theories and then I'll get to the hezmet theory, the theories out there they're actually they they're they're really they're a mess, I'm sorry to say. There's not much to say in their defense. You have theories like whoever volunteered to be the pre- to you know, whoever had whoever volunteered to be the parent or whoever intended to be the parent. But there could be a whole host of people and it could have people who have nothing to do with the actual child. It could be your neighbor down the block who could have had the intention, who could have volunteered. Um, and so, you know, it just doesn't. It doesn't tell us, it tells us almost nothing. It doesn't tell us what counts as a voluntary commitment of this kind. It tells us just very, very little about who are the parents. It doesn't exclude anybody. It doesn't specifically include who you want, who you know, who intuitively uh, seems most connected. Um, and then there's uh, theories of just flat out. Uh, well, actually, uh, gene- um, gestationalism, which is whoever carries the baby is, the person who is who has parental obligations and parental rights, but that's sort of now only can only be a woman. So all the father's rights on this theory are purely derivative, the father's responsibilities, purely derivative based on his relationship with the person who's gestating the child. Theoretically, an in, in incubator one day could do most of the gestating and then the child that child on this theory would have no parents. Um if you look at the theory like causation, who caused the child, and I think that one at least is is intuitively compelling. You think like, okay, a child needs to be taken care of. Well, who created this, you know, this problem or this necessity to raise the child? And you might think, well, who caused the child? But, you know, as we know from Hume, causation is very complicated. Um, and as we know from the non-I, you know, so that leads us to wonder who caused the child that has too many, that a child has too many causes. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the non-identity problem, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, it would seem like everything that happened before a child was born, every single thing and every single person was necessary in order to get to the point where that particular child was conceived and was born. And so, is everybody? You know, is everybody older? Is everybody in the in the in the causal chain all the way back? Uh, it takes a village. <laughs> you know, it takes a village. It takes you know a history. Uh, it just it seems to finger too many people. It could be the person pressuring you to have a baby, the person who sold you the defective condom. um, And it just doesn't seem to capture uh, the real people responsible for taking care of the child or parentally responsible, which I I mean the people responsible to take care of the child, to raise, nurture, love the child, et cetera, whatever parents are supposed to do. So um, in thinking about what makes somebody parentally responsible, Um, uh, I think it's really the fact that we have, um, the the hazmat material, the hazardous material that is in our possession and control are our gametes. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have, we, we have in control this dangerous material and we have to take care of it because it could really hurt somebody. It's like having TNT or something like that. And so, uh. If we choose to take risks with this material, if we choose to allow organics to join with others and grow into a person and become a child, um, then we're responsible for the results that we take, for for the results of the risks that we take with the hazardous possessions in our control. So the same way that, you know, this is consistent with our moral and legal views about our responsibility for the risks that we take um and impose with the hazardous material that's in under our possession and control in the same way that if you drive a car you have to you know uh, you have to drive it, you have to drive it carefully you have to be licensed and then if there's an accident you have to pay for it you have to carry insurance um and this sort of so uh, one of the things that I, besides for i think giving us an answer that really makes sense in terms of who is parentally responsible it also fits the theory into our general theory about responsibility we have For things that, for possessions in dangerous possessions, which gametes are in our control, and that makes it a less of an ad hoc theory than the other theories about who might be parentally responsible for things. Um, And so that's what I think speaks very much in favor of the hazmat theory of parental responsibility. The only difference between our owning gametes, which are hazardous, and other hazardous materials that we might own and control is that. We didn't ask to own gametes, so we're sort of stuck in this position. We're born with these dangerous things kind of lurking inside us, ready to bolt, and they breach all kinds of gates. And so that gives us just sort of a little bit of a heavier burden that's a little bit unasked for. But we still could, you know, it's not that difficult to um, sterilize oneself. And so it's not like you have to forego sexual intercourse in order not to have a child. And so we can interfere with our gamete-releasing systems. We can cut them off entirely. And... Um, I think that control is enough to say that the fact that we didn't ask for it doesn't just get us off the hook in terms of being responsible the same way that if I walked into my house, let's say, and I saw some TNT sitting in my living room, I can't just walk away and say, well, I didn't ask anybody to put it there. I mean, I now have to take care of it and not allow it
0: to blow up the neighborhood. (laughs) Right. And does the um, uh, does the view that gametes are hazardous materials also feed into um, uh, the idea that life is life is a mixed bag i mean so uh just as you were saying we didn't ask to be the the people who are in control of this hazardous material um but that's the condition that we're stuck in um that looks like yet another respect in which life is this unasked for burden is that right
1: yes and one of the unasked for burden that you impose upon your children is that they have to be you know uh, parentally responsible for whatever happens with their (laughs) gametes. <laughs> it's a
0: vicious cycle. Um, <laughs> uh, um so um uh, l- let's move then to the, the sort of the heart of the book then is a um is a positive well, is 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 a proposal about um uh how to answer philosophically the question about whether um procreation is permissible. And um you put yourself in between, although not equally distant from two uh two poles um and there's one view that we'll start with i guess uh that um wields a a a funny kind of um metaphysical argument uh maybe it's a conceptual argument um that will be familiar to a lot of our listeners uh from other regions uh, in ethics because uh the non identity problem crops up in all kinds of places um uh but in uh with respect to the issue uh that uh, the, the procreative issue um the non identity problem gets wielded in a um uh, in favor of a conclusion that um procreative acts are never wrong um uh, or at least are never harmful to anyone um,
1: I'm sorry to jump in for a sec yeah, almost never
0: yeah. okay good right right thank you um can you run us through sort of the the almost never uh almost never wrong uh view and and say something about your suspicions uh about the non-identity um uh element uh in those views?
1: So the idea the, you know the non-identity problem is based on it, it it is uh based on this idea that as long as your life is worth living it's just you know there is nothing wrong with having with making you live it and the and the only way for you to have been born is for the things to have been is And so when, so all the decisions that precede your conception are necessary for your existence. And the easy way to understand this is to think about a 14-year-old girl who decides, oh, maybe she should go ahead and have a baby. And somebody convinces her, well, that wouldn't be good for the child. Why don't you wait until you're 25? But, of course, by the time she's 25, she's going to have a different child uh, because it'll be a different egg and a different sperm. And because sperm lead very short lives. Even small things that we do, minor decisions that af- affect timeline, and even minor changes in the timeline, change the identity of who's going to be born. So that uh, it appears that everybody's, uh, whoever exists, their existence is contingent on me- most of the decisions that preceded their existence, including the decisions that seem to have a negative impact on them, like having a fourteen, like having a fourteen-year-old or a fifteen-year-old for a mother. You know, that's bad for you. But what would be the other choice? You wouldn't exist at all. Which of course. Would not be bad um, for anybody, but uh, that has been used. It surprises me the 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 hold that the non-identity problem seems to have had on so many people. Its grip continues to surprise me. So when Parfit discusses the non-identity problem, he's like, "Oh, this can't be right. We have to have a whole new ethical theory because this cannot be right. It can't be true that we have no way to account." to explain what's wrong with what seems to be procreative negligence, like having a child at 14 or burying nuclear waste sloppily, you know, uh, because just the fact that the future people will have lives worth living, it doesn't seem to justify what we're doing. And he gives up and he says he can't find theory X, but we got to find it. And then that part of his view seems to have dropped off. And the rest of this problem seems to have sunken so deeply among um, philosophers and bioethicists in an almost unquestioning way as a, as a moral guide instead of a moral puzzle. Um, and of course, to me, it seems like it is not at all a puzzle, um, but, it, but, but I'll get to that soon, the part of the non-puzzling part, you know, how to solve the non-identity problem if you take a look at it. But the other, so one thing, but the two surprises first. One surprise is the grip it has had. And the other surprise is that if you take a look at the prevailing um, contemporary Western ethical theories, you know, deontological theories, you know, you know, Kantian theories, uh, consequentialist theories, and Aristotelian virtue theories—none of them seem vulnerable to the non-identity problem because the non-identity problem is a problem for any theory that says, in order for something to be wrong, you have to show how it is worse for a specific identified individual. But none of our theories say that, right? I mean. Conscious talks about uh, being able to universalize what you're doing, treating other people as ends in themselves. Um, Consequentialist theories talk about maximizing the good, so you don't look at an effect on a specific individual. You look at the overall effect. Uh, Going back to Kantian theories for a moment, you're not looking at effects at all. Um, You're looking at other things about the act. Uh, and if you look at virtue ethics, you're looking at character traits and what makes you a better person. So none of it just seems to completely miss all of our ethical theories. And yet, very little attention is paid to that, which very much surprises me. So that's just the surprises I have about the non-identity problem. But if I'm going to talk about, you know, but it, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in order to address the non-identity problem, I think we can just look at the fact that Um, it uses existence itself to outweigh life problems when we should really take existence as a baseline for measuring whether something is harming you or benefiting you. So, for example, uh, if we think about um, the 14-year-old mother, uh, her child is entitled to say, look, if I don't exist, that's fine, because it's not me. There's no subject for that problem or that deprivation. Because all future people will exist. That's what it means to be a future person. If I never exist, I'm just this hypothetical possibility. um, And that doesn't have a good or a bad. Um, So my my baseline for evaluating what's good or bad for me begins with existence. So my existence is like this kind of scale where I put the goods on one side like a balancing scale and the bad's on the other side and hopefully the good that way the bad. But existence itself is just the scale that I'm putting things on. And so if I have a 14-year-old mother, that goes on the bad side of the scale. Now, if other people in my life are really nice to me and give me other good things that weigh down So that the good side is is weightier. So I'm glad I exist and existence is fine for me or whatever, but it doesn't make anything on the bad side of the scale any better for me than it was before having a 14 year old mother. It's still bad for me. So Mm -hmm. by doing that to me, you've done something that burdens me.
0: Um, Right.
1: Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I mean, one just quick thing about the the puzzlement, um, uh, especially with respect to, the grip that the non-identity problem has had on um, consequentialists uh, of various stripes um, and the role that it has played in consequentialism, sort of like one of the standing sort of critical thoughts that people have about consequentialism is, um, you know, as Rawls put it, it doesn't take the distinctness of person seriously enough. And, um, It seems odd, then, that that would be a very popular thing to say critically about consequentialist views, um, given that the non-identity problem requires a certain kind of distinctness among persons, right?
1: It requires a distinctness among persons, but not necessarily in the way that will... Will sort of make it okay for consequentialists to not take people to not take the distinction between people seriously, because what I think the the criticism of consequentialism is in that regard is that it justifies burdens to some by benefits to others, not recognizing that there's no sort of sum, there's no sort of underlying um, they're not all in one bag, so you can't just say, well, I'm going to take something from you because it's better for somebody else. Well, so what? I'm not somebody else. Um, uh, so that's. I think that is a negative feature of consequentialism, but it also does it also, I think, is accurate that for the most part, consequentialism, the non-identity problem kind of bypasses all of our ethical theories, because in order for the non-identity problem to truly be a moral problem, it has to be the case that you can't say that something is wrong unless you can point to an identified individual that is made worse off by it or that is harmed by it. And just none of our moral theories operate that way. But I think even if they did, I think that we can point to the particular person harmed by procreative negligence uh, in two ways. Uh, One is the way I described by just showing that you know, by having you at 14, your mother loads up the bad side of your existence scale that's bad for you, that harms you. Existence is neutral, It has zero value. Having a 14-year-old mother has negative value. Now, the fact that had she not done so, had she not had you at 14, you wouldn't exist at all, just means that, if you hadn't ha- that you w- we wouldn't be balancing anything on any scale. It doesn't somehow make having a 14-year-old mother an overall good, and it doesn't give your mother credit for the other things on the good side of your scale. So that's sort of, I think, the metaphysical way to show that we really, really don't have a non-identity problem. Um, but I also think that if you look to Kantian theories or or, or contractualist theories, you can point to the specific person harmed, um, not harmed, wronged by, um, by procreative negligence. Because um, if you look at, uh, because we're going to set our standard of care uh, consistent with So we'll say, what is the most kind of respectful, uh, what is the the procreative principle we could have that respects people as ends in themselves? Would it be to say, oh, anybody could bury waste sloppily? I mean, why would we say that? That's not what the principle we would want universalized, because if we do that, people might die before they could reproduce at all, so it wouldn't be able to uh, persist or be universalizable, and it also doesn't seem respectful of people have ends in themselves, or projects to pursue. So we would not set that as a procreative pr- principle of, of permissibility. And so that any any and then anybody who did not abide by whatever principle we did set in a Kantian or, or a contractualist way would be wronging the, the their child, whether their child uh, specific interests and in well-being are set that
0: ba- uh, you know are set back or not right right so um so it looks like if the non-identity problem is dissolved or displaced in this way then one um central plank in the case that says that um uh, procreative acts are never impermissible uh goes away too right
1: that they're never impermissible. Yes, yeah, or right. almost never. Because again, according right. to the non-identity problem, if somebody is, would predictably have a life not worth living, then it would be wrong to create them. But I think part of what, uh, and I think it, it's interesting because I, I think that a lot of people don't pay attention to that part because I think Parfit's kind of an, I mean, he's an optimist and he's a happy guy. And he thinks that those kinds of cases are very rare. Um, but yes, if you, if you look at the theory of the non-identity problem will be that most of the time, if somebody will have a life worth living, You know, anytime that somebody's life is worth living, you have this blanket excuse to create them under any kind of condition. So long as you satisfy that really, really low level standard of care. So if we do away with the non-identity problem, which I think we can easily do, then um, we we remove that that permissibility. And now we have to really take ourselves, you know, take our procreative acts more
0: morally seriously. Right. So um, let's now shift to the other to the other poll. There are people who uh, hold um, a strong uh, anti-procreative sort of view that says that um, it's all. Well, well, do they say it's always wrong or it's almost always wrong uh, to create another person?
1: Well, Benatar says it's always wrong. Yeah. (laughs) And Schifrin says it's always morally problematic. So she points to a problematic feature, but she doesn't make an overall Definite assessment because she's not taking into account other excuses you might have to do what would otherwise be
0: wrong so you um you distinguish your view uh from those those stronger or more more militantly anti procreative uh views. Can you tell us a little bit about those views and then we'll we'll get to the to to the the sensible middle ground uh, uh thereafter
1: yes, I know it's so sad for me to hold the boring sensible middle <laughs> It's not boring. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, and it, my intuitions are definitely on the antinatalist side, that life is terrible and we shouldn't have any children. But I, I, I think that's temperamental. I don't see that the arguments hold up. So if we start with um, Benatar's argument. So Benatar actually has two arguments. He has this sort of best explanation reason for why it's, you know, it's, it's you know, absent pleasures are good and absent pain. And, I mean, absent pleasures are not bad and absent pains are good and that could undergird some of his antinatalism. and I don't spend a lot of time on that in my book. I address it in another paper that I wrote because I don't think it's his strongest argument. It's the best explanations view and you might think that his explanation is less intuitive than the things he's trying to explain. So I don't find that a very compelling argument. Um, but his, his other line of argument is just that life is just bad for people, but they're too, you know... Um, Pollyanna to notice it. Um, and I, I think that he is assuming a kind of objective assessment of human well being that I don't know why he has a right to claim that. What makes him a better assessor of someone else's well being than they are themselves? He talks about adaptive preferences, uh, which, which is a known phenomenon that we tend to, you know, be in order to make life more bearable for ourselves. We're going to start, we're going to conform our desires to what we can have. Um, and we're going to conform our preferences to that what's, to what's available to us or to what we're stuck with. So let's say a woman in a sexist society might express uh, a preference for her status, but we are standing outside her society, know what she could have instead, and know that this is not really good for her. But when it comes to assessing um, the value of somebody's life in totality, we don't stand really outside the human condition. We're right there with them. And so I don't know why we'd be better placed to make an assessment about whether life is worthwhile rather than the person themselves. And that's sort of, I think, a fundamental flaw in Benatar's argument. And when he talks about the quality of life and human well-being, I mean, if we look at hedonistic measures, plenty of people are take pleasure just in being alive, like we talked about earlier, like Nagel. Uh, they have this temperament that their glass is always almost close to the top. You know, Benatar says he hates being hungry, so even if he enjoys a meal, he knows he's hungry before and it's horrible and he'll be hungry again. But other people enjoy being hungry because then they anticipate the pleasure of having the meal. And there's just not one way of experiencing that or assessing that experience that's more um, objectively true than the next. It's interpretive. Um, and, on, you know, if you think about... Um, well-being as satisfying your desires, then the fact that we adapt our desires to what we can attain will only allow us to enjoy more well-being if we're thinking about well-being as desire satisfaction. So if we think about well-being as hedonism, you know, on hedonistic measures, people tend to do very well by their own assessments. On desire fulfillment measures, even by Benatar's assessment, even though he says it's a Pollyanna thing, it doesn't matter. It's still you're having your desires satisfied. Um, And if we look at objective list theories of the good, people tend to say, you know, think that they're doing well on those measures of the good. Also, Benatar criticizes that way of assessing well-being, but he doesn't offer an alternate way of assessing well-being on which his view, which is that, you know, life is terrible, comes out as objectively more true than another view. So I just don't see that his view succeeds in that way. Um, The other way, even though, like I said, I'm very intuitively I'm very partial to this idea because I think I just have the same kind of pessimistic temperament or risk averse temperament that he has. Um I hate being hungry also and, you know, I think it's terrible. But that's not <laughs> I don't think it's objective that, that my take on um, or my interpretation of experience is somehow objectively true for all people who enjoy their experiences. Um so I don't think that line of argument against all procreation succeeds. I think we have to take people at their word when they say that they love being alive. I don't see why we are in a better position to tell them that they shouldn't love being alive and that they're really miserable or not doing well. Um, yes. So that's one one uh, one at uh, sort of argument that's, that I would say that would make all procreation wrong. And then Schifrin presents another argument, which is based on consent, um, which I'm also sympathetic to, which is that nobody has to be born and you're just kind of shoving it on somebody without their permission. And isn't that a, a consent rights violation? Um, but the problem is that we create, when we procreate, we procreate children and children don't have consent rights because they're not autonomous. So we have paternalistic authority over children and therefore it would only be wrong to impose life's risks on them if that risk would not be, pater- you know, paternalistically permissible to impose. If it would be like sending your child out in a blizzard without a coat or a flashlight, if that's what life is like, but we don't think life is like that. And so if life is a reasonable risk to impose, then the fact that the child didn't consent does not make it a consent rights violation because children don't have consent rights. And so that's why I think that the lines of argument toward saying that procreation is always wrong, I don't think they succeed. Although I'm not entirely satisfied with just saying, OK, we can you know, sort of move on happily because I think there's still sort of a niggling worry because, you know, your kid could be the miserable one and maybe life really is terrible. Um, So that's sort of the best I can do with these worries. I don't think the argument succeeds, but succeed. And I find flaws in them that I don't think can be overcome, but they kind of sort of niggle at me anyway. Um, But, but, you know, I think that might just
0: be me. Well, but it does seem uh, like uh, at the very least, we've got a good reason to think that the two polar views, uh, it's almost never impermissible and um, it's at least uh, almost always impermissible um, uh, have their problems. so w- we've got some some middle view, although it doesn't sound uh, equidistant from the from the two polars. Um, but um, uh, so it looks like we're going to have to exercise some judgment then uh, and to come up with some account um, of when procreation, as the subtitle says, may be permissible. Mm-hmm. Um, can you run us through uh, how we begin thinking about the conditions under which? um, procreation, uh, could be, uh, permissible and, and, and why, I mean, I, I take it that, um, we're still in need of an account of, um, uh, what, you know, why someone might justifiably engage in procreative acts.
1: Right. So I think that the reason we, we might engage or want to engage in procreative acts is the same reason we engage in other, uh, activities and impose risk upon other people because it's good for us we want to we want to drive a car we want to have children we want to be engaged in the parent child relationship as a parent um and that's unique and this is the only way you know not the only way to do it you can adopt you can adopt a child but that's not always feasible and you lose out the biological connection which I don't think is negligible um and so we have to think about what uh you know can we impose this risk? What are our interests? What are the interests of the child? And so I think that it's helpful to think about uh, adjudicating the conflict of risk in inherent to the ethics of risk imposition, right? What are the costs to us of not being able to engage in this behavior? What are the costs to the person impacted, in this case, the child, of our engaging in this behavior? So our, you know, how will it, how might the child enjoy their life? How might they be harmed by their life Um And so in adjudicating this conflict, we take a look at um, we want to balance the competing interests, the parental interest in procreation and the child's interest in having, you know, a life as good as possible, a perfect life actually is what anybody would want, but you're not going to get that. So something close to that or something that would um, be a reasonable compromise between the two sets of interests. And that's why I take – I think that um, rules and contractualism is kind of ideally suited to this kind of question because it's aimed at resolving distributive conflicts of interests. you know, how to distribute benefits and burdens between people when they have, e- you know, equal claim to those benefits and burdens. Um, and so that's sort of the way I think the approach that makes sense to take for this kind of a conflict, even though we, we might think that parents and children have interests in common, and the parents want the best for their children, and this is all true once the child is born, but none of that applies before the child is born necessarily, because before the child is born, the child wants a per, you know would have an interest if they're going to be if you're going to be born, your life you know it would be good for you for your life to be excellent. Um, uh, and but if you're going to have a child, their life probably won't be excellent you know, we're certainly not going to be perfect. And so you have this inherent conflict between parental procreative interests and um, what I call um, procreative goods, a child's um, uh, interest in what would be good for us. And so if we think about the rules the veil of ignorance, where we we think, okay, what kind of rule, if we didn't know, if we didn't know who who we were going to be, what kind of rules would we pick to govern this behavior? Um, and so we think about what are what what's good for us. Well, we want to have you know uh, our biological and psychological needs met. We want to be well nourished. We want to be well educated, socially connected, have self respect, not be oppressed. Um, and then you know it would be optimal to have optimal you know uh, shares of these goods. So to be optimally nourished in optimal health, optimally educated according to your abilities and your interests, optimally socially connected, you know, high self-respect, high self-esteem, politically and personally free from, from oppression. And those are the things that we want, that we would want to, you know, from behind a veil of ignorance if we're going to talk about what kind of principles should govern procreation. Um, and one way in which I depart a little bit from Rawls is that uh, I don't think about it as an Behind the veil of ignorance, I don't say assume you could be either a parent or a child because that kind of tips the balance in favor of parents since um, everybody uh, everybody eventually becomes a parent. Not everybody has a child. Um, actually, I think that tips the balance in favor of children, so it doesn't seem as even. Um, and it's also uh, easier to think about if you think about it as, okay, who is going to uh, you know, think about rules that you would want to be in play. This is what you want your parents to have abided by, and this is what you will abide by. So that's the kind of intrapersonal conflict. So you pick a procreative principle, and then you assume that you're, even though in reality this is not possible because you said we are already born, but you would assume that your parents, you know, what what rules would be fair for your, you know, what would you want your parents to have abided by, and then what rules you will abide by as a prospective um, parent.
0: Great. So just like in the um, the more familiar uh, run through of the the Rawlsian scenario, um, this application of the the Rawlsian contractualist story also yields uh, two principles on your view. Um, We've got a motivational restriction. That's one of the principles and a um, principle of of, uh, procreative balance. Um, These are two principles that are to govern um, procreative behavior. Um, and can you run us through how these two principles constrain that behavior?
1: Yes. So the motivation restriction um, is a restriction on procreation, procreative motiva- motivation that says it must be motivated by the desire and intention to raise, love, and nurture your child when it's born, um, because if we value self-respect, which is a, something that we ha- has high value uh, in terms of procreative goods, um, that's something that's sort of necessary to a life of human flourishing, because if we don't have self-respect... Why would we even care about our own good? So um, we want to be treated. In order to have self self respect, I think you have to be treated as a self worthy of respect in your own right. Um, and if somebody is having if if somebody is having is having a child in a way that's not motivated um, by by the intention to uh, the desire and intention to raise, love, and nurture the child once it's born, then it would it would threaten baseline. Threshold level of self respect because it's not treating people um, as separate self. For example, if you're going to have a child to generate help on the family farm or for social or to improve your social status, um, that's not treating the child as a separate self, you know, um, valuable for her own sake. It seems instrument to treat the child more instrumentally for some other purpose. And that threatens, I think, self respect because in order to have self respect, you have to be treated as a self so that you have a self to respect. So I think it's pretty motivationally compelling. Um, and you know of course we would want our parents to have created us with, in this respectful way um and it doesn't cost so much for us to only have to procreate in this way so that's sort of the first principle and the second principle so the first so the motivation restriction would would uh constrain certain kinds of procreation let's say having a savior sibling just for the sake of saving the sibling and not for any other reason not because you want to raise, love, and, you know, nurture the child once it's born. But you just want it. You want the bone marrow. Um, right. that, so that would be something that would be constrained by the motivation restriction. Um, procreative balance is the more general principle that applies to all of the cases, um, and that constrains cases in various ways. And that, that says that procreation is permissible when the risk that you impose as a procreator on your children wouldn't be irrational for you to accept as a condition of your own birth, in exchange for permission to procreate under these risk conditions. So basically you're saying, okay, um, I get to procreate. If if I'm going to impose, let's say, the risk, the 25% risk of Down syndrome on my children for the sake of having, being able to delay childbirth by five years for career advancement, then it would have to be rational for me to accept my parents have done that to me for the same reason.
0: (laughs) But there is a, um uh I thought there was also a, an element about exchanging the procreative liberty for the risk is that right
1: yes so so if you well it's you exchange the procreative freedom, let's say in order to get the procreative freedom to impose that kind of risk on my child, I will have to have accepted the procreative um the risk on myself of having my parents um do this to, you know, operate under the same kind of principle. So what we're trying to balance here is the the cost of the restriction to the parent, right? Uh, no mm-hmm. biological procreation, let's say, or no procreation at a, certain age, at a certain age versus the cost to the child's procreative goods, right? What impact uh-huh. is it going to have on their self-respect, on their ability to be well-nourished, those kinds of things.
0: Right. So these seem like, um, uh, on the face of them at least, seem um uh intuitive uh, principles uh, uh, with which to to think about um you know the permissibility of procreative acts um, but there are uh, as you call them in the book sort of surprising um, implications um can you run us through a couple so there are implications for adoption and abortion that uh, aren't a major part of the book, but um uh, also a range of other kinds of implications with respect to disability um. Can you talk a little bit about some of the 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 uh, the cases that you deal with at the end of the book?
1: Um, So some of the surprising Do you want me to talk about the surprising aspects or the.
0: Yeah, that would be great. So
1: um, if you think about some of the surprising aspects, I think one of the surprising aspects is it turns out that um, you have these kind of procreative diminishing returns because so that you have much more of a interest in having the first child and therefore much more more procreative latitude. Uh, because the con- because constraining you from having that first child will impose a very steep cost on you. But once you have a child, then you are already a parent. You're already engaging in the parent-child relationship as a parent. And having another child is just, you know, like having a second helping. Um, and, yeah, it's great. It's a lot of fun. But it's the cost to you. The cost between zero and one child is, a- is steep. The cost of having one child instead of two is, is not as steep and two instead of three, even less than let's say eight instead of nine. I mean, come on. So. Um, it's very hard to justify um, very large families having many, many children. That would be very difficult to justify. And it, so that's not so, so surprising. But what might be surprising is that the value to the parent of the first child is unique and different from the value of any subsequent child and is greater. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there's a
0: the, the subsection of the chapter that talks about that. So, a, you know, you're vindicated. You're, you're not mom's favorite. <laughs> you were never as important. Uh, you can't be.
1: That's just how it is. Uh, your mother might love you more, but you're not going to play that thing as important um, a role. Um, uh, and one of the things that you mentioned uh, in terms of disability, you know, when I was uh, researching for this book, I did a lot of research on disability and what it is and how it plays out and is it social and is it natural. And there was a lot, you know, some of I read some things that were very interesting, some things that were really compelling, some things less compelling. But what I came up with at the end of it okay, is that, you know, there's just, there's a natural component to disability, and there may also be a social component. And it's just pointless to try to separate that out. It's like the nature-nurture debate. And so, and it, and it really doesn't necessarily matter to the person who's going to have a disability. So one of the advantages, I think, of the approach I take to procreative ethics is to just look at the procreative burden. What is it going to be like to have this? Profile. What's it going to be like to be deaf? What's it going to be like to have a kind of What's it going to be like to be discriminated against? Let's just look at it. Um, and then we don't have to decide how much of it is natural, how much of it is social, because we can't really figure it out. It's kind of impossible. And it's unnecessary in terms of fairness, um, of procreative fairness. So uh, that can seem to be surprising. Um The other thing that might be surprising is that you get this sort of abortion prize and adoption penalty if you follow the principles that I set out, which is that if you're willing to abort a child that might have a big problem, then you have much greater um, procreative freedom because, let's say, um, you can decide to get pregnant at 42, where the chances of Down syndrome are pretty high, or let's say at 45, where I think it's like one in Nine, one in five. I have the numbers in my book, but it's, I think it's even one in four, and really high. Eventually, okay. they get to be staggering because they rise exponentially. And so, if you're not, if you are, if you think abortion is wrong, then you cannot get pregnant at forty-five because that impo- it's an irrational risk to impose on a child. The the burden on the child is far greater than the procreative restriction would be. But if you're willing to say, well, I'm going to get pregnant at forty-five, I'm going to be, I'm going to have um, an amnio. When I 'm five months pregnant, and if the child is down syndrome, i 'm going to abort it. well, now you can get pregnant at forty five that's no problem and so you have greater procreative latitude if you will screen and abort um for certain problems with certain fetuses um, and that just seems like oh, that seems wrong, but it's actually accurate uh because um you're not going to actually have that child and so uh it doesn't it seems to be um reasonable um you know, because it's not surprising that a greater, you know, that more cho- more choice have abortion or not allows for more permissible choices. Um, that's right. So uh, that that's um, the surprising part about abortion. The surprising part about adoption is that the more willing and able you are to adopt, the greater your chances are going to be that you are restricted from biological procreation by our principles of procreative permissibility. And that's because if let's say you have a, you know, a a problem you know some kind of genetic mismatch with your with your partner and any child you might have had the risk of having a serious disability but not something you know unlivable with well if you can adopt easily instead then the cost to you of not having that biological child is not that steep but if you cannot biological if you not, cannot proc- adopt instead let's say you wouldn't you know it's too difficult or you don't have the money or whatever else then the cost to you of not procreating would be steeper and so you're Procreative permissibility would increase a little bit, um, which might be surprising, but actually seems fair.
0: Um, Let me. Can I ask? Sort of, you've been very generous with your time, so um, I want to just sort of ask one final question that's um, not addressed in the book, um, uh, but I I think um, tightly connected to uh, uh, to the view that you're developing. Does the view help us identify or help us say something about um, uh, my, 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 maybe this is a temperamental thing on my part. Um, I think that most procreation is pretty thoughtless um, and that most procreative acts, um, uh, even when they're procreative acts with, you know, aimed at, um, you know, creating new persons and all the rest that um, parents gen, Parents often maybe uh, um, either don't recognize that there's a a deep moral question about um, the decision to have children or um, profoundly misunderstand in some way or other what the moral dimension is. Um, Is there something bad about sort of thoughtless? Uh, procreation
1: yes there's something morally terrible about it. (laughs) so yeah it's bad very bad because you're doing you're. it's it's like you know just you know oh i'd like to take a drive down you know here's a nice car let me just get in and drive along no i never took a lesson no i don't have a license no i didn't think about any risks but you know why not because driving is so wonderful and life is great um it's a very weighty thing i i don't know why people give it so little thought i think um it just seems like the next step in life or they just really want to or they just think, you know, life is great. But it not only it it it's um you know it's not a gift, it's it's very problematic. Um but not but so I think it is really awful that people don't give it more moral consideration and take the argument seriously. I think part of the reason that they don't is because some of the arguments are just very anti natalist and don't, resonate with people. They don't think life is awful like Benatar. They don't think children have consent rights like Schifrin. And so they just don't pursue things further. It seems doesn't have any intuitive pull on them. Um, I think if they thought of life more as a risk and position, uh, which I think is the right kind of model for thinking about this act, it would encourage more serious thought. You know, But in, in my first chapter, actually, I talk a little bit about some of the other general procreative you know, motivational puzzles. We we, we value equality or in our relationships, but then we have children where we're going to have an unequal relationship from the time that and for the for the you know not for most of it's completely you know um imbalanced in power and in yeah uh, you know um and in well in power that's the main way it's yeah it's balanced enough. and we normally think of that as a bad thing um and here we are going ahead. And and deliberately creating a child. And most of the time people want to have children for that period of time where the relationship is the most unequal. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of puzzling and that, you know, we think of uh, and, and children sort of kind of suck up all of our time. So we have no time to do other benevolent things. And so there are these other puzzles that crop up. When you try to think about procreation, that also should give us moral pause. But generally speaking, I think it's terrible that people don't think about this with more moral seriousness. And I think some of the reason is because the model for what kind of an act it is has not been made clear. And so that's one of the things I try to do in this book.
0: That's right. And one of the real virtues, I think, of the um, of the of the view that emerges out of uh, the book is um you know you're i like it when philosophy books do this maybe this is again uh temperamental or that um you know unlike the the, the the two poles the the almost always permissible almost uh, always impermissible view um which sort of give you um answers to the questions um too quickly um the, you know your view uh sort of leaves us with um a set of really difficult um philosophical questions to ask about any particular um uh procreative act we might enter into um in that um it 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 doesn't give us uh, a quick and easy answer to uh the question of whether what we're doing is permissible or not because
1: there isn't a quick and easy answer right (laughs) that's right
0: um Uh, Well, um, Rivka, this has been uh, wonderful to talk to you about um, your book, The Risk of a Lifetime. Um, I usually ask people at the very end um, what what they're up to next or what their next project will be. Are you pursuing this further or is there some closely related thing that you're going to get up to next?
1: Well, I'm I'm actually in the middle of a couple of other papers right now. One is I'm writing about death and uh, the nature of death. Um, which is not directly related, (laughs) Um, and some things on meaning. So those are sort of the other areas that I'm thinking about. But I am writing a paper on um, procreative asymmetrical attitudes toward procreation. Um, Some are considered problematic, and I don't think they're problematic, like the idea that you are, you know, you're not obligated to have a, a happy child, but you're obligated not to have a miserable child. There's a lot of ink spilled on that, which I think is kind of almost comical because it's such a non-problem in my view. Um, right, right. And then I'm, but I'm thinking about another asymmetrical added intuition that I think uh, is worth thinking about, which is what kind of uh, responsibility do we have when our children um, encounter problems? Like are we respons- responsible only for the burdens, only for the benefits? Um, what kind? So I'm thinking more about risk and responsibility, and also thinking about, um, and this is a separate paper. Um, responsibility, parental responsibility to adult children. Like, why should there be or is there or might there not be an expiration date on taking care of children, even if they are
0: grown adults? So, well, all that sounds very interesting. And uh, I'll certainly keep uh, keep an eye out in the journals for uh, for some uh, new papers uh, on these topics from you. Um, But for now, let me just thank you for uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your book. Thank you so much. I
1: really appreciate all the time. It's been a lot of fun. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to my interview with Professor Rivka Weinberg of Scripps College. We're talking about her new book, The Risk of a Lifetime, How, When, and Why Procreation May Be Permissible, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.